So, the book of Habakkuk. What do you know about Habakkuk? Probably not a lot, because he's one of those characters that this kind of, it's one of those books toward the end of the Old Testament, and we know it's there, and probably many of us have read it many times. But like a lot of the minor prophets, unless you study them, we know a lot of it is kind of about Israel, about the time that the, the kingdom of Judah was coming to the end, or some of the minor prophets have spoke about the northern kingdom of Israel. But in terms of the details, we're probably a bit sketchy. So hopefully this will be a real um, eye-opener as to the person of Habakkuk and what he spoke about. Already I kind of fall in love with this book and this prophet. And I, I, every time we get to a new book, I say the same thing. But there's so much here. And I see real shades of Jeremiah uh, about Habakkuk, and I'll explain why as we go through. Just to give you some idea of the, the, the details, the timing, and everything else of these things. Uh, <clears throat> So, the book of Habakkuk fits in uh, the whole scheme of things somewhere around about 612 to 606 BC. So, a very short kind of time frame uh, for the writing of this book. It was toward the end of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. So, of course, the kingdom divides after we have Saul, the first king of Israel, then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom divides to the northern southern kingdoms. And we have the kings of the north, the kings of the south. The northern kingdom were taken captive to Assyria in 722 BC. And then just over 100 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah finally falls to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon. And Habakkuk is the prophet that is preaching to Judah, the southern kingdom, in the days immediately before Nebuchadnezzar arrives on the scene. But it's interesting because as we go through this, in fact, let me just read you a quote from uh, Arno uh, Remus first. He said, Habakkuk, the eighth of the minor prophets, occupies a special place. For he does not speak to men under God's commission, as do the other prophets. But he speaks about his people and their enemies, the Chaldeans, to God. So, interestingly, he is a prophet. He's called a prophet. He's fact, one of only three of the prophets that refer to themselves as a prophet. But he doesn't prophesy as such. I mean, there is elements of prophecy in the book, but it's really, it's an argument, it's a complaint to God about the problem he was experiencing, the, the, the situation that he was facing and the nation was facing. But he doesn't complain about God. He complains to God. And I just love the honesty of this. John Wadey, another Bible commentator, said this, when Habakkuk only looked at his circumstances, he was bewildered and confused. When he waited for God and listened to his word, he rejoiced in song. The real purpose of religion is not to have the doubts removed, but to help us be sure of God's control of our lives and our world. It's really important. Many of us go through situations and circumstances, and we may be in them right now, that we don't fully understand, or we don't even partially understand at times. But the, the, the important thing is that we learn to trust God through those things. And that's what this book really gives us. And as I say, I just love the honesty of Habakkuk. As we go through this, you'll see it. Because he asked that question, God, why do you allow, and you, know, you fill in the blank in your own life, why does God allow certain things? Some of the, the, the problems we face, some of the tragedies we experience, some of the, the challenges that just don't seem fair. Now, of course... In the scheme of things, nothing is really fair because actually we are all deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment. We don't get what we deserve. Fortunately, we get God's grace. 
If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you don't get what you deserve because Jesus took on the cross what you deserved. So none of us are deserving in that sense. But that aside, we often experience things that just don't seem quite right. And we all have those times when we look at the wicked, if we may use that term to speak of the world, and we see them prospering in all sorts of ways. And you think, Lord, why are they being blessed? Why are they prospering? Why am I going through this? Why am I struggling with this situation or that situation? And so Habakkuk really is a summary of his cry to God. And what I really like about this is that it's okay. It's okay to cry out to God. It's okay to speak to the Lord and say, Lord, why? And sometimes to get to the stage where you're on your knees in tears and say, Lord, this just it's not fair. Lord, explain, why am I going through this? And Habakkuk's given to us an example of somebody who does just that. What's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion of this is God does what he does simply because God is God. There's a great quote, a great song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some of you will be familiar. And the words are, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man, so I'll never understand it all. For only God is God. And that really is the the summary of this book. And that's what Habakkuk comes to see, that actually he doesn't understand it. And God doesn't fully answer his questions either. But what Habakkuk does come to see is that God is God. And actually that God is good as we've seen, and God cannot do anything that is not good. So God always has a reason. We may not see it, we may not understand it, but once we come to that place of realizing that everything is in God's control, even the things that are going on in the world now, however crazy they may seem. Interestingly, Habakkuk's name means to wrestle. Uh, Some of the translators and commentators actually say his name means embracer. And, And in a sense it does, but it's embracing in the form of wrestling. Okay, If you're wrestling with somebody, you're embracing them. So it, it, it embrace is fine, but it doesn't really encapsulate what it really means. It means to wrestle. And it's a perfect name, as we've seen with all of these minor prophets. Their names fit the, the message they bring because it means to wrestle. And that's what he does. He's wrestling with God. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. Jacob, in the Old Testament, we find wrestled with God. Jeremiah certainly wrestled with God. Jeremiah always came off worse just as Jacob did. But he learned a lot from the experience. Most likely Habakkuk was a Levite and a musician. We don't know that for sure, um, but from what we see at the end of the the book, and it's only three chapters, it's not a long book, uh, but it seems that he was most likely a musician and probably a Levite as well. Certainly a prophet, as I said, because only he, Zechariah, and Haggai actually give themselves the title of prophet. Um, That's not to say that there was any pride or anything here, but he was called of the Lord. No question. And his contemporaries were Jeremiah, Huldah, who was the prophetess, and Zephaniah. One commentator said, Habakkuk reflects a familiarity with the writings of Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. Some of those were kind of contemporaneous to a point, but others had spoken years and years before. Certainly uh, Isaiah, as we know, Hosea had spoken, and Micah had all spoken before this time, about the time he was going through right now. Whether there's anything in it, I don't know, but uh, rabbinic tradition says that he was the son of the Shulamite woman who was raised from the dead by Elisha. Don't mind. No way of verifying that, but apparently rabbinic tradition had suggested that was the fact that was the case. So we do know that he was a philosopher, earnest, candid, sensitive, speculative, 
and the suppliant among the prophets. Joseph Parker said he represents pessimism or despair as it never was represented before. And on the other hand, he rises to the heights of faith, which even David did not attain. Now, that's quite a statement. I'm not sure whether we can really argue that. But it just gets the point across that this is an individual that has a real highs and some real lows. And I love that because it's so real. It's one of the things that, you know, the Bible is so incredible because it doesn't try and give us a candy-coated picture of things. It tells us as it is. He was, as some have put it, the Thomas among the apostles. or As Thomas was among the apostles, so was Habakkuk among the prophets. In him we see the conflict of a doubting mind with a believing heart. Doesn't that sum us up so often? Doubting mind, believing heart. We believe God. We know God can do, but will God do? Or why is God allowing? He witnessed Josiah's great form. Josiah, one of the great kings. If you look at the, the southern kingdom of Judah, there was a number of kings, 20 kings or so. There was only nine, so only five of them were any good. Uh, the rest of them just rebelled against God and uh, brought uh, God's wrath and judgment and so on. Uh, but Josiah was one of the good kings, and he saw the reform that Josiah had brought about, but then he'd seen also the effect of that fading out. And he'd heard with great sorrow of the death of King Josiah at Megiddo. Uh, that's in the middle of Israel, in the, the Megiddo Valley, the Jezreel Valley. Uh, as uh, Josiah had gone out to fight with Pharaoh Necho, that's an interesting piece of history uh, we've talked about it a bit before, no doubt we'll talk about it again. But uh, obviously he'd heard the report of the fall of Nineveh. Now, this is what we were talking about last week. Um, uh, in the book of Nahum, Nahum speaks exclusively about the fall of Nineveh, this great Assyrian city. Syria had kind of ruled the world for the best part of 300 years, and they've been barbaric and cruel. And Nahum prophesies that God is going to bring judgment, and we went through looking at a number of those prophecies, uh, all fulfilled with precision and detail. And so, of course, Habakkuk aware of all these things, that God had spoken of it and it had come to pass, and Nineveh were no more. They'd been defeated at the hands of the Babylonians and the Medes, and uh, this new empire was on the rise, the empire of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's father, had kind of conquered the, uh, the Assyrians, and he was becoming more and more uh, the one to be feared. And then, of course, he dies about 606 BC, and his son Nebuchadnezzar, the one we're very familiar with, uh, then ascends to the throne of Babylon. So Necho, in this kind of interim period, Pharaoh of Egypt at that time, controlled all the lands west of the Euphrates, so from Iraq to Israel and, and down below that, just for a short period of time. And then, of course, uh, Pharaoh, Necho, and Egypt are defeated by Babylon as well. <clears throat> so now... Josiah, the king we mentioned a moment ago, had some really uh, not very good children who succeeded him to the throne. Jehoaz, one of them, Jehoiakim, another. They reigned Judah only for very short periods of time, but as a result of their ungodly characters and the things they did, the social conditions in Judah were just getting worse and worse. Lawlessness and tyranny were everywhere. Strife, there's contention, and so on. We, we saw a lot of this in the, the other things we've looked at with the other minor prophets so far. Uh, righteous people were oppressed, and especially the poor. Uh, many lived in open and flagrant sin. They didn't care. Uh, they had this mindset, well, this is Jerusalem. God won't judge Jerusalem, surely. This is the place that he's placed his name, and the, the city of the great kings. And well, Of course, it was just arrogance on their part. 
And as a result of this, idolatry was flourishing. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the world today, doesn't it? You know, just let me read that list again. Think of the world, this country, lawlessness, tyranny, you know, strife, contention, righteous people being oppressed, and especially the poor, and people living in open, flagrant sin. Does that just a little bit like the world we live in? And idolatry flourishing? Yeah, sounds a little bit like the world we live in to me. Now, Habakkuk's complaint is what we get in the first four verses. Uh, it's really, why do the unrighteous prosper in Israel? Again, we may ask the same question of the world today, of this country today. And then we see God's response to that. And the response is not one of those you're expecting. It's kind of the Jeremiah scenario. So for those of you, uh, I love that phrase in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah is really struggling, he finds out there's a, a plot against his life. And Jeremiah goes to God and says, Lord, why? This isn't fair. And God comes back with one of the great answers of Scripture. He says, Jeremiah, if you've run with a footman and they've wearied you, how will you contend with the horses? And it's like, he says to Jeremiah, look, Jeremiah, you think this is tough? It's going to get much worse than this. It's kind of like, come on, Jeremiah, get up, put your big boy trousers on. And it's, it's a real wake-up call. Jeremiah does pick himself up and he puts his trust in God and God carries him through. Similar situation here. Habakkuk goes to God with his complaint, and God's response wasn't clearly what Habakkuk was expecting. But as a result of that response, Habakkuk realizes that God is in control. Because God makes it clear that the Babylonians who are going to bring judgment on on Judah and Jerusalem are themselves going to be then subject to God's wrath. God has a plan in all these things. Habakkuk then asks the question, kind of like, I kind of trust you, you know, um, but it's just, you know, are you really sure this is a good idea? Then God responds to that in chapter 2 and explains why he's bringing the judgment. And yes, God is in complete control. And it's severe because of Israel's iniquity. Because God had warned them for centuries through the prophets of what would happen if they disobeyed. And there's the other factor, of course, that back in the, the Torah and Leviticus and in uh, Numbers and so on, God had made it very clear that the land was to rest every seventh year, and Israel hadn't done that. They intentionally disobeyed God's instruction to them. And as a result, God effectively says, you owe me 70 years. And that's why Israel were moved out of the land for 70 years, precisely 70 years. And then the final chapter really is an anthem of praise. It's incredible we go into this kind of really low, gloomy, miserable, and then he comes out with this song of praise to God, who really is the one that's in control of all things. So let's jump in. To the text. So, verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. It implies vision. And it implies burden. Something that's heavy. I mean, a load that you're carrying that's, that's a weight upon your shoulders. That seems to be the response as, as Habakkuk sees this vision, whatever it was that he saw, however it was he perceived what was going to happen. Again, it's just a real weight upon him. And not just for himself, but for the people, for the nation. This was his own country, his own people. And he says... Yeah, you know, the, um, again, the whole thing was just weighing very heavy on his heart. And then that question then we see, how long? He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou will not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou will not save. All right, so he's just, it's a question we may ask God at times. Well, how long am I going to endure this? <laughs> it's a question I've asked over the last eight months in the, the situation I've been going through personally. How long, Lord? How long? How much longer? Do you know, I decided I'd just have a quick look in Scripture at that question, how long. I thought, I wonder how many times people have asked how long. 
And I started going through. I went through, got my concordance, and I went through every time that phrase occurs in the Old Testament. How long? And do you know what's humbled really quickly? Because you know what I found? The first 11 times it occurs, it was God saying, how long to the people? You see, my, my heart was like, how long have I got to endure this? And the first 11 times that occurs, it was God saying, how long until you turn to me? How long until you repent? How long until you trust me? And like, wow. Yeah, we always spin it around and we kind of put the burden on God. Lord, how long this? And God says, how long until you trust me? That really, really touched me. But, you know, we're told in Scripture that all our tears are recorded in Psalm 56, verse 8. It says there, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? See, God records everything. He sees everything. There's nothing that escapes God's eyes, his gaze. And Isaiah 52, uh, 50, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 2 says, Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? See, God is still God. God hasn't changed. See, we've got to see the things that God allows as being part of his divine plan and purpose, though we don't understand them. Verse 3 goes on. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? Again, in his vision, he'd seen what was coming, the Babylonians defeating his people. I'm not really fully probably understanding what was going on. He just saw this, this violence, this destruction. And he says, the spoiling of violence are before me. And they that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked does compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. It's interesting that if you look at what Habakkuk is praying here, he's crying out to God. His burden isn't merely for his own skin, as it were. But it's actually for the people. It's for God's righteousness and the fact that these people had turned away from God. And they've been overcome with wickedness and injustice. And Lord, how long will you let this continue? Adam Clark in his commentary said this, and I thought this was great. He said, they pay no attention to the law. It has lost all its vigor, its restraining, correcting power. It is not executed. Right judgment is never pronounced. And the poor, righteous man complains in vain that he is grievously oppressed by the wicked, by those in power and authority. That the utmost depravity prevailed in the land of Judah is evident from these verses. And can we wonder then that God poured out such signal judgments upon them? When judgment does not proceed from the seat of judgment upon earth, it will infallibly go forth from the throne of judgment in heaven. Very interesting take or statement that is. You know, when judgment doesn't proceed from earth, it will come from heaven. And now God responds. Okay, so Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Habakkuk very much looking at his own country, the problems and the iniquity and the injustice and the violence that was everywhere. And now God says to him, Behold, ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. In other words, look at the heathen nations. Now consider, he says, For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Right? The idea here seems to be that the vision he had wasn't necessarily just of the Babylonians. That may have been part of it, but he hadn't perceived it to be Babylon. He saw the problem in Israel and, and Judah and Jerusalem. And that's what he's going to God and complaining about. And God says, okay, you think this is bad. It's going to get worse. There's going to be something that even if I told you, you wouldn't understand it or you wouldn't believe it. 
You see, God is outside of time and we are not. That's one of our biggest problems. Time is a wonderful thing, you know. Time is that thing that stops everything happening at once. But time is also something that for us can be a real burden because we don't know what is coming in the future, but God does. And that's why we have to learn to trust him. And in Isaiah, we're told that his ways and thoughts are above ours. You know, so why do we complain when we don't understand? Well, it's because we don't trust God. That's the only reason for the complaint. It's because we don't believe that God has got this. Now, Paul actually quotes this verse in Acts chapter 13, verse 41. But there he uses it to allude to the completed work of Christ. God doing something that's so marvelous we wouldn't understand it or believe it. And truly, Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection were just the most incredible event in history. And then God goes on to Habakkuk and says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. God is saying they're going to invade you. The Babylonians are going to come into your land. Chaldeans is the reference of obviously is the Babylonians, that's terrible known as well. And God is going to raise them up. Not just that they're going to do this with their own initiative, God is actually going to raise them up. Now, in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17, we have this great statement. It says, The most high ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. Do you know who said that? Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, the one who is going to come and bring this destruction upon Judah and Jerusalem, comes to a place in his own life after God had humbled him where he recognizes that God is the one that's in control. Nebuchadnezzar makes this incredible declaration, a statement that God is the only one true God and he does what he wants. God goes on and explains to Habakkuk what's coming. He says, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and the horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteneth to eat. Frame this picture of how quickly this judgment is going to come upon Judah and Jerusalem. They shall come for all violence. Their faces shall suck up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. There's going to be no effort in terms of it. It'll be just like picking up sand. It'll be so simple. And they shall scoff at the kings and the princes, shall be scorned unto them, and they shall deride every stronghold, but they shall heap dust and take it. So Judah, Jerusalem is going to fall and they'll become captives. But notice verse 11. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Now we know that's exactly what happened historically. That Nebuchadnezzar did this, he swept through, he took the uh, kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, captive. And then one evening he's kind of marching around on the top of the walls of Babylon, this great wonder of the world as it was, boasting about, look what I've done. I've done all of this. I'm pretty good, you know. And that's when he has this vision. Daniel explains to him that for seven years, you're going to go and eat cow, or eat um, grass like a cow. You're going to be humbled. And that's exactly historically what took place. Until eventually Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and he realizes it wasn't his power. God had allowed this. Now, as a result of what happened, the Babylonians went beyond their remit, and God then did bring judgment upon them because of that. 
But Isaiah 55, the word, verse we mentioned a while ago, verse 8 and 9, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you know it's a really good thing that God's ways and thoughts are above ours? If you could figure God out, there would be a problem, wouldn't there? The infinite God, if we can understand him, for our tiny, finite minds, no, we want God to be much bigger and greater than we can possibly imagine. And we should expect God to do things that we can't perceive or rational in our own minds. So, in a sense, Habakkuk now, humbled to a point, speaks again. But then he asks God the question. It's like, okay, Lord, so I see that what's going on now in Judah, that you're going to deal with this, but, but why would you use the Chaldeans? Why would you use these wicked people? And he says, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, who shall not die? O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and hold the tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? This question is, why are you going to use the Babylonians to do this? And makest men as the fishes of the sea and the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the uh, angle. They catch them in their net and they gather them in their dragons. It's a kind of fishing analogy that he's using. It's the way that they're going to be caught up. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their dragon. Now, get the picture. What Habakkuk's saying is, these are people that do what they're doing. They're going to bring this judgment and this, this uh, cruelty and take us into captivity. And then they're going to acknowledge or rejoice in their nets and the drag nets. And they're saying, well, that's, that's what's provided our victory. I mean, that's crazy. That's like going fishing and catching a great big fish and going, wow, what a fantastic rod that caught the fish. No, no, you were the one that was holding it. And this is the idea that's being presented here, that they don't acknowledge that God is in this. And this is what Habakkuk saying, Lord, they don't acknowledge you. They don't say that you're doing this. It says, pick up halfway through verse 16, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? You know, in their arrogance, they're just going to keep going and keep going. Go into chapter 2. I'm not going to do all of this, but you'll see we'll just the first few verses of this. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So it's kind of the hardest lesson now. That after this kind of conversation, this dialogue between Habakkuk and God and God explaining what's going to happen and Habakkuk being told to listen and watch what's coming next, and then here, Habakkuk saying, he's told to wait. And that is the hardest lesson, to wait. We want to do everything other than wait. God teaches us to wait. Why? Because when we wait, we have to trust. When we wait, it takes the initiative from us and leaves it in God's hands. You see, we are so busy. Everything in our life is instant, isn't it? You know, Joy was laughing yesterday. One of my children, who remain nameless, who, when she's kind of watching something on CBBS, gets to the end, and rather than waiting for the the credits and the music to go up, she would immediately fast forward to the next episode. That's how impatient we've become. 
But everything is instant. And we're so used to having everything now. And we're not good at waiting. And waiting, as I say, it takes the initiative away from us and puts it with God. But God is never in a hurry. As we said before, the God is seldom early, but he's never late. Again, just consider the countless examples in Scripture of individuals who had to wait. And we could spend a morning going through thinking of some of the characters, but people like Moses, of course. In fact, Noah. Let's go back before that. 120 years Noah was building a boat in his back garden. People walking past him, jeering and mocking and laughing at him. And he spoke about this thing called rain, which nobody at that time had seen. You know, that was waiting, 120 years. Abraham, of course, had to wait for the promise. From the time he was called, it was 25 years until finally God fulfilled the promise and Isaac was born. 25 years. If we have to wait 25 minutes, we get impatient. And there are so many in Scripture. But, you know, did God not turn up at the appointed time, every time? Yes, he did. There's a great example. Let me just take you to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let me just read this to you. You'll see the, the reason why this is important. So it's back in the days when Saul was king of Israel. He says, Saul reigned one year, and when he'd reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash. And by the way, I believe that there's a lot of words we use today that actually you find the etymology that the root of them goes back to the Bible. And we use that expression, well, it was a bit of a mishmash. Where does it come from? I believe it comes from here. I can't prove that. I've tried to dig into this a bit to try and find some, some real evidence for that. But this becomes a place that is an utter mishmash. Anyway, 2,000 were with Saul in mishmash and went uh, in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were in Jonathan of Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was uh, was and had an abomination with the Philistines. In other words, the Philistines were really cross about this. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. So there's going to be a battle now. The Philistines have heard of this little skirmish into their, their territory and this defeat. And so they're mustering their troops for battle. And so Saul's trying to gather everybody in Israel. And it says, And the Philistines gather themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And people as the sand which were on the sea shore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in mishmash east, eastward from Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. So, okay, so the people of Israel are now a bit concerned. This mighty army that's gathering against them. And they don't know what to do. They start running in all sorts of directions. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad, of Gilead. As for Saul, he was getting Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days. Right, took a time frame here. Seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So get the problem. The Philistines are gathered. They're ready to come and attack. Saul is there with his limited resources, his limited army, and some of them already started scattering. And so Saul waits for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, Samuel hasn't arrived. And so Saul starts getting really a bit edgy. But rather than 
pray, go to the Lord, trust, seek God. As so many times in Israel's history, God had proven that he would deliver his people. And this is the challenge for us because God, time and time and time again, has proven that he can do things that we just did not expect. You know, we're told he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And when it happens, we go, oh, Lord, you can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think until the next time. And we go, well, I don't know if the Lord could do exceedingly abundantly this time. But again, is the Lord's hand shortened that he cannot save? God hasn't changed. What changes is, because we're faced with a situation we can't see into the future, we start to doubt God. And that's exactly what Saul does. And so Saul said, bring me hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. What's the problem with that? He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a priest. It wasn't his remit to do this. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And God had been very specific about who it was that were to offer him sacrifices and the way it had to be done. So Saul goes way beyond his remit here and offers his sacrifice. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering, of the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I think he just waited a few hours even. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. So Saul goes out now, kind of all kind of uh, very brazen. And Samuel said, what has that done? And Saul said, you, you know when somebody says, what have you done? Yeah, I see it with my children. What have you done? And they look around and say, particularly Shariah. She, she did something the other day. And I said, what did you do? And she said, was it me? It was Yara, I smiled. He said, was it, was it? Who was it? Mita. He said, no, it wasn't Mita either. Who was it? Uh, Connie. No. And then, all of a sudden, she decided it was Scott, our next-door neighbor. <laughs> I was like, it's great. We do that, don't we? We kind of like, well, well, you know. and Saul does justice here. You know, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul's like, well, because I saw that people were scattered from me. And that thou camest not within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal. And I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself. I had no choice. Therefore I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Do you see what he lost out on? Just because he could not wait. Because he didn't trust God. God was going to offer him this incredible privilege of having a dynasty in Israel, a throne that would have endured. Now, this wouldn't have been the throne that the Messiah was going to come from. That was separate. That was always promised to come from the tribe of Judah. And yet God here said that he was going to give Saul an enduring throne in Israel. And Saul blew it. He lost it all because of impatience, because of not being prepared to wait and trust God. You see, whenever the initiative comes from us, a wonderful thing that Anna sent me that we put in the email a few weeks ago, if God is not the alpha, don't expect him to be the omega. God is, if God is the one who initiates, he'll be the one that completes. God always completes that which he begins. When we initiate, when we begin, don't expect God to bless it. But now the kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Oh, such a simple thing. And Saul went and blew it as a result of that. And the rest of Saul's life, you read it in Samuel's account in 1 Samuel, what a, a mess his life became. 
all because of this one incident where he stepped out and did not trust God. What was it that prompted Saul to disobey? It was fear. It was fear that he didn't have the natural resources to cope with the situation. It was a real problem, don't get me wrong. But it was also fear that he'd lost credibility and respect, and fear that he'd run out of time, and that's probably the biggest one. That's so often why we do things, because we judge things by our perception of time, not from God's point of view. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I say unto thee, take no thought for your life. Jesus said this. What you shall eat or what you shall drink, or yet for your body, what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment. In regard to this quote, Oswald Chambers says this. He says, take no thought for your life. He says, be careful about one thing only, says the Lord, your relationship to me. Common sense shouts loud and says, that's absurd. I must consider how I'm going to live. I must consider what I'm going to eat and drink. And don't we all do that? Jesus says, you must not. And I love this statement from Oswald Chambers. He says, be aware of allowing the thought that this statement is made by one who does not understand our particular circumstances. Jesus Christ knows our circumstances better than we do. And he says we must not think about these things, so not think about these things so as to make them the one concern of our life. Whenever there is competition, be sure that you put your relationship to God first. Re-establishing your own heart and your mind that God is God, that He's in control, that He loves you. You've been bought at a price. God is not going to abandon you. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. God is good and can only do good. Trust him. And then, just the last couple of verses for this morning. The Lord said, the Lord answered me, so this is Habakkuk speaking, and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tablets that he may run that readeth it. In other words, write down everything I've shown you, everything you've seen, what I've told you, and write down so that, that people that can read this can flee. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. Now, in the, the context, it wasn't very long before it came to pass, but uh, not though it tarry, wait for it. See, God again, wait, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Again, those words, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. For God is God, I am man. So I'll never understand it all. For only God is God. And really to know this is what faith is all about. That through the trial and the pain Habakkuk was enduring, God now declares to him, behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. Speaking of the, the Babylonians that are coming. Like Nebuchadnezzar. His soul was not upright. God pronouncing judgment on Babylon as a result. But then says this, but the just shall live by his faith. We know the verse. It's not by knowledge and understanding. It's not by resolve or determination, but simply by faith. What is faith? It's trusting God. It's not faith in faith. It's not merely hoping things will turn out okay. It's not wishful thinking. It's certainly not a blind leap in the dark. But an unshakable faith in the person of God. That God is who he says he is. He is good and does good. And he's faithful. He does keep his promises. He's unchanging. He really is working all things together for good for those that love him. You know, and though we may not see what God is doing or why, 
It is a faith that, just like Job said, though he slay me, I would trust him. One of the most incredible declarations in the whole of the Bible. Job says, look, you know what? I'm going through all of this. I don't understand why. Even if God kills me, I trust God because God is God. That's an incredible statement of faith. Job had already had everything stripped away from him. But he says, okay, I don't, I'm not enjoying this. I don't understand it. I don't think I deserve it. But God is God. You know, and those storms may come. And though we may lose everything that we once held dear. And your God is doing a shaking right now. I believe in the church, in this church. I think the church worldwide is a shaking. That we let go of those things that really don't matter. You know, it's the same faith that says, like Job did, naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing the song, maybe we forget the context sometimes. Even if God is to strip everything away, do we trust him? Again, it's not by knowledge and understanding, not by resolve or determination, but by faith. Now, of course, you know that this verse was the touchstone of the Reformation in Europe. Martin Luther had tried every possible thing from a human perspective to live a righteous and holy and pious life and everything else. He'd gone into a monastery, you know, walked on his knees until they were bleeding and all sorts of things that they were trying to do to try and show some sort of humility. But upon reading this verse, he suddenly realized that all that we can do is utterly worthless. Because it realized that to be just, that is to be counted as justified, right with God or righteous before God. It didn't require endless self-mortification or penance or observation of rituals. Going to church on Sunday, going to meetings, those things are great and they're beneficial, but those on their own make no difference. They simply require faith. You realize that it's not about what we do, it's about what God has done. And as you read this verse, the just shall live by faith. It's as we've been saying all morning, that it's not about our initiative. It's trusting him. You know, Christ paid it all. There was nothing that could be added by even the most devout lifestyle. Salvation is a gift. It can't be earned. It is to be received by faith. Just. By the way, the New Testament, we have a trilogy that Paul gives us based upon this verse in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. The just, Romans 1.17, this is where the verse is quoted the first time, is those who are counted as justified and right before God. And the book of Romans really kind of unpacks the whole idea. And then shall live, that's in Galatians 3.11, how, where this verse is quoted in the New Testament for the second time. That is, their way of living will be, and Galatians explains that way of living, by faith. In Hebrews 10.39, the third time this is quoted in the New Testament, is that unshakable trust in the person of Jesus Christ who will never leave or forsake us, who is the resurrection and the life, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the great I am, the beginning and the end, the way, the truth, and the life. You know, And if Jesus is all of this, and he is, trusting him to deliver us, provide for us, protect us, and to bring us safety to glory should be the easiest thing in the world. Oswald Chambers again once said, suppose God is the God you know him to be when you are nearest to him. Think of those moments in your life when everything has been incredible and you've just been aware of God's presence and you're just walking in blessing. Well, that's what God is like all the time. 
Okay, let me read it again. Suppose God is a God when you know, well, that you know him to be when you are nearest to him. What an impertinence worry is. And that's why Jesus speaks about worry as being a bad thing. It doesn't help. It only harms us. Habakkuk reminds us that it is okay to question God. God knows our weaknesses. I'm told that he was, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Habakkuk asks God, how long? And we often ask that same question. But while you're waiting for the answer, and it will come, just as Samuel did arrive. Remember how close Saul was to that solution, Samuel arriving. Remember that God asked the same question of each of us. How long? We ask God how long, and God says to you, how long? How long until you'll let go of those things that you're holding on to? How long until you turn from that thing in your life that you know is not right? How long until you separate yourself from the things of the world that you know are not helping you? How long until you trust me? So anytime you go to God and ask the how long question, be reminded that God asks the same question back to you. You see, God wants us to be in this relationship with him so that we can walk in blessing. It started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walking in harmony with God. It ends in the New Jerusalem. New heavens and new earth. New Jerusalem where we will walk with God for eternity. What we've got to do now, and there are many, many in Scripture that have learned to do it. Enoch was one. He walked with God. That's his testimony. He walked with God. That's what God wants for each one of us, to walk with him. And as we walk with him, suddenly the how long doesn't become an issue anymore. Because we know it's all about God. So we get examples in Exodus, Numbers. These will be in the slides online later. You can look at these scriptures where God asks the question of us. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the reminder that you are God and that you are in control. The Lord, there is nothing that happens that you are not aware of, that you have not already been there and seen ahead of time. The Lord, you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord, your ways are above our ways, your thoughts above our thoughts. So we pray, Lord, this morning, help us to trust you. Just to trust you, to wait on you, to allow you to take the initiative in our lives, whatever situation we're facing, whatever circumstance. And while we're waiting, Lord, rather than us asking you how long, Lord, I pray you allow the spotlight of your Holy Spirit to shine in our hearts and ask us how long until we let go and let go. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.